me uh, just have a little little sip of this chamomile tea that I have here. Very good. I have I have fond memories of uh, drinking tea with you and Alex in uh, our little Airbnb in Brisbane last year. Mm. Yes, we sat around the table amused on the day's proceedings. Yeah, it's true. I thought that it would be nice to like, you know, establish a little bit more of a tea habit, you know, drinking drinking herbal tea at night, but it, it hasn't been that sticky for me, you know, I'm, I'm only recently redoubling my efforts. I think maybe because maybe it's cold weather times, maybe because I just am drinking way too much coffee and I need mm. to dial it back. Do you... If you drink tea at night, though, you have to get up too many times to go to the toilet. That's an interesting question. I mean, I've always been a big water drinker, like day and night. You know, I'm a I'm a water bottle guy. I tend to like I always have a water bottle with me everywhere I go. It's like my security blanket. Right. And only this this may sound this is like one of those weird things where you realize that other people have been thinking about something their entire life that you just missed. Somebody pointed out that if you don't drink water before you go to bed for a couple hours, you won't wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And I was like, wow, that's that's a profound idea. And I've never tried that. I always drink water right up until when I get into bed. Mm. Do you drink water at night or tea? Yeah, I, I do. But I know I have a glass of water by my bed. I always feel like I need to go to the toilet, but I, I, I just kind of shut that off, that feeling off and like, but it's, it's not good for your sleep because then you kind of have a half bad sleep. Yeah, it seems like sleeping through the night is probably sort of like the ideal sleep scenario. I don't know, like I get up in the middle of the night and I go to the bathroom, you know, at four in the morning. Also, my cat wakes me up. so. There's a couple, usually those two things are related. My cat will wake me up around four in the morning and I'll go feed him or lock him downstairs. And then uh, depending on how frisky he's being and go to the bathroom and then I go back to bed and it's fine. You know, like I don't feel like it's all that terrible, but if I could really improve my sleep quality by not drinking water at night, maybe I should try it. Yeah, and then just drink a, like have water there in the morning first thing you just drink a big glass of water yeah i tried to do it recently like after i discovered this this weird thing that other people are doing apparently and it was a real struggle um and i did i felt dehydrated you know like when i woke up in the morning but mm. i guess it's just just a, a little adjustment it's hard to change that kind of habit i think it's so fundamental well apparently it's unnatural for us to sleep for like a whole eight hour block. Mm. Apparently it's more natural. Well, I've heard this anyway, that um, humans used to go to bed for four hours and get up in the middle of the night and do things and then right. sleep for another four hours. Yes, I've heard about that too. I remember that research was making the rounds back in the day. And it's only because we have electric lights really that you know, we're able to stay up later and be effective or do work or read or watch television or doom scroll on the internet, whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear in my room, but um, there's a fly, there's a big fly buzzing around. Mm, I can't hear it. It's, it's like that episode of Breaking Bad. 
You ever see that episode? Uh, I've seen them all, but which one can you remind me? Well, so basically at this point, um, Walter and Jesse Pinkman um, were kind of, were in a situation where they were being forced to run a meth lab for um, Gus Fring and they kind of set them up you know in like the, the secret lab underneath the laundry oh yeah but they were they were being watched the whole yes. time yeah yeah and meanwhile they're down there and there's a fucking fly and they can't and the whole episode they spend dealing with this fly i, I think this is actually probably the worst episode in the series it, it was like a total filler episode they're just basically constructing a side plot to fill because to fill some obligation i think <laughs> of like number of episodes they had to record so that might be why you don't remember it no i i remember i i maybe do anyway it kind of reminds me of like it's like it's a good way of setting the scene the flies with marrickville buzzing around in my bedroom um in the mm. same way that i really enjoyed the radio commentary that the australian open does hmm. on their website for you know if you don't have television and i think more importantly the hearing impaired mm. i mean the vision impaired they were like the seagulls above rod laver uh flying around and you can hear them you can hear the seagulls oh, oh. <laughs> and it really paints a, i don't know just that level of detail it really sets the scene yeah that's lovely were they so were they describing the birds or were they just letting the, the bird song kind of filter into the mix. You could definitely hear it, and sometimes you can hear it on the television too, but yeah. um, you could hear it and they just mentioned it, and then like, okay, so if you're just joining a radio commentary, that's an immediate visual. It just, I don't know, because you know, Rod is huge, and the roof's up there, and the seagulls are up there, so it gives you like a sense of the depth of mm. the whole stadium, and the court is down below, and the seagulls are up high. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, recently, I was spending some time with the recording um, when I was working on the the match that time forgot segment. There's like a live recording that I was using from when we were sitting watching the match at Margaret Court Arena, and in the recording, you can really clearly hear these this bird song that's very distinct. And I notice the same bird song when I watch matches that take place on Margaret Court. I I don't know if the different courts have their own bird populations or if it's something about the acoustics of the environment. It was really interesting as again one of these little ways that I, I'm so attached to this particular event. I have so much personal history there that I that I can have sensory memories about about it, you know, just by hearing the the call of a of a type of bird. Uh, brings me back mm. to a place and time. It's really powerful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Another interesting thing about the um, the radio commentary, it's like they do play by play. They do <clears throat> shot by shot. Mm. So, uh, sitsy pass back, uh, cross court, slice backhand. Kokinakis comes up to it, uh, cross court forehand, backhand. No, uh, and they just like uh, they. They they have to speak so fast to describe all the shots as they're happening. Yeah, I feel like the amount of time you have to actually call the the shots is uh, is pretty short. Would they would they like abbreviate? You know, when you're talking about Kokonakis and Sitsipas, you've got a lot of syllables there. It's a fair bit of. Uh, it's true. Um, I, I I think they get they have enough time to describe the shot 
the type of shot and direction, except when it comes to net, and then there's like uh, maybe a bit of drama there and you're not really sure who won the point until they tell you at the end. Because I'm like, I thought that was Kokonakis's ball, and it said, and they said a winner, but no, it was Tsitsipas. Because yeah, but you get, you can get a bit lost. But I think you probably get good at deciphering if you listen to it a lot. And another thing is, um, I think the uh, vision impaired use that service a lot, and so people send in messages asking for like things that they want to know, like um, could you describe the difference between. Nadal's and Federer's service motion and then the commentators will have a go and they'll be like all right well Federer kind of uses the platform stance and he stands like this and then we go up his body and describe the whole motion because I know it's something you, you would never you would never know you could never um, really fully get a sense of unless someone described it to you. Yeah I love that um, I do sometimes on TV uh, they will they will like break down a service motion and I and I really like that kind of technical detail I, I don't know if that's like interesting to most fans or not but it's you know it's just like one way to kind of break up the you know the entirety of a match that can last hours and they you know I, I, I do think that it comes into play more when somebody has like a bit of an unusual ball toss or motion or there's something very you know, noteworthy, or perhaps they've changed their motion over time and they want to call attention to the, the little changes that people have made. It, I just was, I was, so, I was realizing like when you spend your whole life looking at the game, you can really see it. Um, another one is that the, uh, a number of commentators, at least two different commentators, uh, have commented on Rajiv Ram's service motion being very Pete Sampras-esque. Mm. Which is, you know, I mean, I watched Pete Sampras play a bit when I was younger. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly not with that kind of like careful eye and I would never pick that up. You know, I would never immediately see the, the similarity, but I'm sure there must be something to it if, it, if it's been mentioned by multiple uh, different commentators. Yeah, I really love for the Tennis Tragic, um, I wanted to do this, is, is, how, is employ a poet mm. to describe motions, different service motions, because um, there's some pretty interesting ones like uh, Milos Raonic um, springs to mind with that kind of whirlpool motion. Okay. Um, and then there's that, um, it could be Del Bonis, the yes. uh, Argentine player. Del like, Bonis has the wildest service motion. Yeah, and Alex... Um, <laughs> Alex kind of likens it to a wizard, like with his wand. <laughs> and then he casts a spell at the, at, the, at the critical moment. He's like, Abracadabra! <laughs> oh, I love it. So let's get into it. The women's final happened. Uh, yesterday, your time. I watched it this morning, and Naomi Osaka defeated Jennifer Brady six four six three to win her fourth major title, her second Australian Open. I found the match a little bit disappointing, just as you know, just in terms of the match play. 
and right. the drama. Um, I mean, it wasn't terrible. Uh, Jen Brady can play with Osaka, but, you know, it was kind of defined by some nerviness. Brady had a chance to break in the first set to go up and failed to capitalize, and then she lost the set on a really bad miss on a short ball, like dumping it into the net. And then Yes, that's right. Osaka got off to this, like, four-love start in the second, and it was... There was a little fight back, but it just kind of sputtered. What did you think, Matt? Uh, well, I joined the match at 4-3, I think, to mm. Osaka. Um, and I think they'd traded some service breaks up until then, but they were back on serve. And that part of the match when I, when I joined was um, really interesting. Jen Brady was not able to um get a first serve in and she was getting really right. frustrated yeah she was struggling struggling to hold serve and she said at one point she said come on where's the first serve something like that <laughs> she, like, she really audibly like she was mumbling to herself and then she was like got so frustrated that she just said it out loud and then she served an ace after she got that yes. out of her system she was like Alright, and then she said nice, and then she got out of that service game and held serve for four all. Yep. And then she had a chance to break Osaka in the next game. Yep. There was this wonderful exchange where she hit a a drop shot and then Osaka countered with a by just getting there and hitting it off to the side, off to Brady's backhand side, but Brady managed to get there and hit a backhand lob over um, Osaka at the net, and it went in. It was a really that was maybe the best point of the match. Mm, yep. Uh, but she still couldn't break Osaka, and at that point, it was like, well, it's a bit of a battle here, you know. Um, I yeah, I thought it was quite a battle, and then Osaka, you know, just hit some great ground strokes and was serving pretty well herself. She kind of doesn't seem to have very many weaknesses right now. And it kind of seems like she's just separating herself from the pack, that she's like in a different class. Right. From the players. There's so many really good female players right now uh, who, you know, people who have won slams or are knocking on the door, like Brady, you know, like Kennan's won one, Shantex won one, Andreescu's won one, Halep's won a couple. Uh, you know, you have these players. And then, you know, the, the kind of older guard, like Muguruza and Kvitova, people who have won a, a, a few. And then all of a sudden, yeah. Osaka's the one who is like, she's still very young. And she's won, you know, she's won two in a row. This is the second time she's won two in a row. And uh, I guess the main thing now is just like, is she going to, um, you know, is she going to be able to carry this into like the clay court and grass season like she hasn't really proven that um she just skipped the french open last year she hasn't she hasn't proven she can win on those surfaces but she's kind of ridiculous you know she is yeah she's like the new the new serena um people are calling her because we haven't seen her as dominant a player right um as serena since serena and serena's still there as well which is nice as well because they could still be some um, Serena Osaka battles before Serena reti- retires, yeah. and there you know can be this kind of changing of the guard. But um, I think there's a couple of interesting stats that prove that should show that Osaka might be one of the greats 
She's mm. the first um, player since Federer and Celis to win their first um, four slam finals. Mm-hmm. So she hasn't lost a slam final. She's won her first four. Yep. Um, also, there's only been 15 women in the Open era to win um, four or more slams. Yeah. So, you know, she's already putting herself up there with those 15 names, you know, um, like Navratilova and um, Steffi Graf and Monica Seles, um, Serena Williams. Um, we could go through and probably at the beginning of that era, there's Chris Evert and um, I don't know how many Billie Jean King won and people like that. But, you know, like only 15 of them. And yeah. Saka's already one of them, and who? How many more is she going to win? Yeah, it's um, is Sharapova on that list, or did Sharapova only win three? You know, we should go really go through this list and name them yeah. all. That'd be kind of okay. interesting. Do you have it Do written wanna, down? I don't. Um, can we go into the computer system? All right, let's yeah, let's uh, let's ask the computer for its uh, for its knowledge. Um, so in the open era, we've got Serena Williams with 23, Steffi Graf with 22, Chris Evert with 18, Martina Navratilova with 18, Margaret Court with 11, the homophobe, mm-hmm. Monica Seles, 9, Billie Jean King, 8, Yvonne Goolagong, 7, Justine Enna, 7, Venus mm-hmm. Williams, 7, Martina Hingis, 4, Five, Maria Sharapova, five. And then there's... That's only 12. So there must be three other players with four slams along with now Osaka. Right. I think this... I think the um, what they said on air was that Sharapova is the last woman to do it, to reach four. And it's like, wow, that's a long period of time um, without somebody somebody reaching that number. And I think if you factor in the men... Uh, it's it's equally it's it's at least as long. Like I think the last the last three men to do it were Roger Novak and Rafa. Murray's won three, Stan's won three, and that's it for like twenty years. It's crazy. So so right. So I actually had two other stats. It's so funny because we rarely get into stats, but these two like stood out during the commentary today. Osaka, she's twelve and zero when reaching the quarterfinal of a slam. She's never lost it a quarter or later. Um, wow. And then I think this one's actually more impressive because that's a little bit like, I think that says a few things. Like she's only been around for so long. But she has gone out early a few times. It does seem to indicate that she's getting stronger, deeper in events, but it's a little bit of small sample size. The other stat that I like is that Osaka is 44-1 and one after winning the first set at a major. 47 and 1 after winning the first set. 44 and 1. 44 and 1. Wow, yeah, okay. That's um very impressive. That's incredible. I mean, just to never like to never give it up. I mean, it's you know, I I think Rafa had only lost one five-set match after being up two sets to love, which is it's different on the men's side with best of 5, you know, it's it's a bigger hill to climb. 
but I mean, like Osaka's on the course to be like that. And with the three set format, like that's wild. Crazy stat. So she's a good front runner. She holds her nerve. She, if she loses her nerve, she gets it back. Um, and yeah, she's an incredible player and there's absolutely no denying. It. And I think she's going to be at the top of the game. And I guess my, my follow-up question though, is like, is that, exciting like you know i was listening to the tennis podcast today and they're gushing about her because that's kind of you know of, of course they are they're, she's amazing why, why not be like super into it personally i you know i'm not a huge fan of hers it just i i'm finding that i'm rooting against Damn, her more often than not sacrilegious <laughs> but like Naomi Osaka we're talking about here <laughs> the, the woman who who bought a soccer team so that uh, women athletes could have a, you know, have a chance at being professional, uh, being professionals. I don't know that uh, This is the woman who, well, I think we should, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that even Tennis Australia, this quite conservative organisation, made special mention of her Political work. They didn't call right. it political work, but if we cut now to Jane Herdlicker's, um, the CEO of Tennis Australia's little speech that she gave about mm. Naomi at the ceremony yesterday. Your tenacious spirit was on display in full force tonight. And it's not just on court, but it's off court as well. And in the last 12 months, you've stepped into your voice and you've made a huge difference in everything you've focused on. And it is truly inspiring and an opportunity for all of us to step back and look at the ways we can make a difference in the community. Thank you for that. You can hear what she's meaning is, I think, her Black Lives Matter stuff. Yeah. Um, even that penetrates to the level of, you know, a very kind of white, white and conservative organization like Tennis Australia. Yeah, it it's it, it's an interesting. I mean, she is she cares about social issues and she's putting her money where her where her mouth is and I think there's a lot to admire there. Um yeah. it it's interesting how the media covers it cuz they do cover it in this very like well, isn't it nice that the the athlete is has opinions and they don't really talk about it themselves. They just allude to the fact that it demonstrates some kind of maturity and thoughtfulness and i'm not even i'm not not talking about her character or her or her no i'm talking about her tennis yeah her her tennis but not it's not even so much her tennis it's it's the notion of having a dominant figure like i just i i want her to have competition you know, I want her to be pushed. I don't want it to be like one-way traffic for Naomi until she gets her 30th slam, you know. Um, and maybe I feel differently about other players. You know, I get more excited about uh, Bianca Andreescu. Um, but that's just, you know, it's just personal feeling what I like to watch. You know, the, when I watch Andreescu matches, I find them really compelling because there's always kind of this dramatic edge and there's just a little bit more on display and Naomi's more controlled. She's, you know, she's a little bit tighter with her emotions on court. And, you know, this is obviously just a theme for me. Apparently, as my friend reminded me, and I'll never not think about, you know, I just 
I, I think boring is the worst thing you can be apparently. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I don't, other people don't find Naomi boring. She's not, she's, she's not roundish, you know, she, um, she's, you know, but she plays, she plays a, an aggressive baseliner style for sure. I mean, she hits big serve, big groundies, you know, she's a power player. And yeah, I just hope that these other players can really push her and beat her on occasion. Um, right. Moving forward. Yeah, yeah, she is a big power player. Um, but even and even Naomi recognizes that that's maybe not the most attractive game style hmm. when she says that she would play as Shea Su Wei in a video game. If um... <laughs> no shit, <laughs> that's so, awesome. I mean, that, yeah, that's why maybe I I can see where you're coming from in the game style, but um, personality wise, like you know, that is a funny and call for her to make there. Um, you know, like it shows intelligence and and imagination. Um, the way she is in in interviews, you know, like quite self-deprecating and reflective and polite, also at the same time polite and introspective and really wanting to answer the questions. She's a pretty um, interesting cat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think maybe part of it is that she's, she does have like surprising depth in her character and in her personality. And I think part of that is because she talks like a, like a Gen Z teenager a little bit, (laughs) you know? Um, I got called out, uh, um, by my friend Joe for, uh, saying she sounded like a millennial. She's not a millennial. She's post millennial. And, you know, she's just got these kind of like vocal patterns that, that, uh, you know, yeah, they sound like, sounds like a teenager, but she's, she's showing some maturity in her, in her actual behavior. And, um, she, she clearly puts a lot of thought into what she's saying and doing. Uh, I think she's a very intentional human being and there is a lot to like and admire about her. I, I just, you know, I'm not, I, it it could change, you know, maybe, maybe I'll come around on her at some point. Yeah. And maybe like to win at the French Open, she might have to change her game a little bit. Maybe, you know, when we see some battles with players that play a different style, actually, I think, um, Jen Brady's athleticism, if she can like hold a nerve a bit more, that kind of athleticism on the court could reap some interesting battles with Naomi and make her, you know, make the the matches more exciting. Maybe it's that she's too dominant at the moment. Yeah, and you know, it's she's won the last two slams in a row, and she hasn't been pushed too much. And if she did get pushed by, she got pushed by Muguruza in this tournament. That's the only three set match she played, and Brady pushed her at the U.S. Open, um, and she wasn't quite as competitive today. Firstly, um, I want to com- Do you like to be called Jenny or Jennifer? Jenny. Okay. Firstly, I want to congrat Jennifer. Let's talk about Jen Brady a little bit because I've really come to appreciate her. Alex, I think, 
called her in chat the other day something of a legend. A bit of a legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to say an Aussie, Aussie thing to say. I think she's a bit of a legend. <laughs> yeah, like not like in the stodgy like she's a legendary figure kind of way more like she seems like a cool human being who's yeah smart and surprising and witty and has personality and it totally wasn't obvious at first to me she really she's she's a grower for me and i think for herself as well she's a player who so according to chris everett today she wasn't a promising junior she was like way back in the pecking order. She was really wild. Um, and yet she got into this incredible shape. Uh, here's my this my stat of the day about Jen Brady is that there were 72 players in, I guess, both draws who were in hard quarantine. And Jen Brady was Jen Brady was the only one to get past the third round. Which is also like pretty incredible. I mean, that that situation really messed people up physically and i think you know a lot of people who were expected to do better didn't do so well so uh but yeah just personality wise character wise i'm finding that i really enjoy watching her and i just you know there's like a subtle charm to her like you gotta kind of watch closely and totally she's cool and she's smart and like she's kind of direct as well like if you listen to her interviews Mm. she'll like she doesn't back away from the questions, you know. She's like, I think she's like, she's got a sharp wit, and yes. she's kind of, um, she has got a dry sense of humor as well. Um, I reckon like this indicates how smart she is. That that we were talking about how she dealt with quarantine and how she she kind of researched the way to do it. You know, what would be the healthy way to do it, and um, she recognized that she needed to talk to her community daily and sort of have um, chats with people and not like to watch television all day, which, you know, what else are you going to do in if you're stuck in a hotel room? But she said she didn't even watch, she didn't even get into a Netflix series because she knew that she would just get too involved in, in that world and needed to stay sharp. Yeah, and apparently, like, uh, you know, earlier... In, during coronavirus, she she packed up and went over to Germany to train with her coach. Like she like, she seems to have a very serious approach to improving her game and improving her fitness. And you know, uh, I guess uh, in the in the post match interview today, I think she was talking about how she knows she just needs to raise her level further so that she can be more competitive when she doesn't have it all going. And yeah, yeah, like you see her in an interview and just kind of, she's just sharp with her responses. She's really quick. This is sort of, it's an interesting contrast to Osaka. I, I feel like often you can like see intelligence in people's eyes or like in the way they, they react, you know, especially when they're being spoken to. And I feel like it's very immediate with her. And Osaka's kind of an interesting counterpoint because I do think she is very bright. She's clearly intelligent and thoughtful, but she just is a little slower in the processing and doesn't, you know, isn't that kind of immediate, like, locked in kind of personality. She's cool. Another another quick thing about Jen Brady is that she didn't even really, I think this really helps. She didn't, like, care that much about tennis when she was a junior. Like, she didn't necessarily have a coach. It was like, you're going to be a superstar. You're going um, to work hard now. And, like, I think she had her youth. 
she played tennis, but she said that she, it wasn't until college that she really found the drive and knew that she wanted to be a professional tennis player. Mm. So I think that's a good trajectory for someone. Have your youth, then work out what you want to do a bit later. Yeah, yeah, it's not a not a path that you you see a lot. Like you know, players, men or women, who go to college and then you know and kind of take their time before joining the tour. Um, seems to be kind of kind of a rarity. There's so much pressure for for the players who are able to play at that level at a younger age to to jump right in. So this week, Texas has been in a bit of a crisis due to this storm. We've had this incredible winter storm, very unusual, and it knocked out power and a lot of people lost water. And it's a pretty serious situation. And I was sitting pretty for the first three days with power and water. Everything was working at my house. I was feeling pretty good about it. Um, and I could tell that, you know, friends of mine on Facebook are really suffering. Like people with newborns, you know, like are in a house that is literally freezing in the inside and you know everybody has support from their communities in my life anyway not everybody has that but then fi- then finally my power went out and I was like oh shit like it just completely scrambled my brain I was it was weird how unprepared for it I was because even though other people were experiencing it I was like okay well what do I do now like where where am I sleeping like what do I do with my cat um you know, like, how am I supposed to work? Am I going to be able to work at all? Like, you know, if I have to stay here, like, am I going to be able, like, what am I going to do once the sun goes down? <laughs> you know, like, how, like, if I'm going to cook, um, I have a gas range, but um, I have to use, like, a headlamp to cook, and it's really miserable. And, yeah, it's like, I just got totally scrambled by it. It was surprising. Yeah, that does paint a pretty bleak picture. Because, um, you know, where the cities are, our cities are really not made to be without power. I mean, it's, it's different if you're out in the bush with people, you know, like, that's kind of conducive to no power. But, like, in the city, it's like it feels really dystopian to not have power. Yeah, exactly. And people's lack of preparedness creates this extra layer of problem, you know, like, oh, people don't have food in their houses necessarily because they're reliant on being able to get food on demand at any moment. And I went, I went to the supermarket yesterday thinking like, oh, things are a little bit better now in my neighborhood. And maybe I, like, I, I've, I felt like I had most of everything I needed but kind of wanted to get some more vegetables. I was really short on vegetables. And the produce section was picked completely bare. There were, there were some scallions, some red peppers, a few heads of lettuce that were in good shape. I was very pleased to get some iceberg lettuce. I made a little wedge salad today with blue cheese dressing. And yeah, uh, and then there was no meat. Every article of meat, every meat byproduct in the, in the supermarket had disappeared. And that definitely felt dystopian. You know, like, okay, well, we're not too worried about it. We know the supply lines will be reopened and this place will be totally full again in a day. But right at this moment, it's a little weird. So what, has everyone just gone, human need meat protein to survive power outage? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, 
and veggie protein too. I mean, there was no, there were beans. You could get beans, some canned beans. For, surprisingly, there was still pasta. I don't know if you experienced this, but in the early days of coronavirus, pasta was just sold out. Pasta and rice were sold out everywhere. Yeah, there was definitely times during the pandemic, the more lockdown stages of the pandemic where you couldn't get pasta. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was weird. Yeah, I think it all just kind of shows how, how fragile our, our entire civilization experiment might actually be. We're relying yeah. on, on these systems that are so complicated. Yeah, that are, that are designed for human need. Let's talk a little bit about doubles, Matt. Um, I've been watching a little bit more, and I think it's actually because it's just been such a stressful week for me here in Austin. And I, I, you know, as the tournament winds down here, the the key singles matches are suddenly at night in Australia, which means middle of the night for me. Two thirty a.m. is when the men's final starts tonight, and it's like, okay, well, I just have to watch it on tape delay in the morning. But the doubles, you know, the men's doubles final is on tonight, and Rajiv Ram is going for the double-double. Double-double. That's not bad. Um, Not a bad effort from Rajiv. Interestingly, he was one of the quarantine players as well. Mm. So he's done really well to um, get over that. Yeah, I guess they didn't count count doubles in that that stat earlier that I was reciting. No, but... um, yeah, he, he obviously he would have had to deal with all that inertia in the hotel room and then come out very quickly and get back into form. Um, he, he is playing, who is he playing with? In um, Joe Salisbury, is it? Yeah, Joe Salisbury, yeah. Yeah, I watched their match. Um, they're playing the Kiwi Michael Venus and the Aussie John Pierce in... Uh, third round match and um they were very good very sharp team Mm. Um, it was a i think it was close match seven six seven six they won that one but um he really is one of the best doubles players in the world right now Rajiv Ram. yes yeah no question and he's wearing that um i think we talked about him earlier he's wearing that uh new balance outfit Right. I don't normally like an outfit that has just the t-shirt. I, you know, I'm a bit of a sucker for tra- for tradition there, and it has to be the polo neck. But he's rocking it. It's a good design. Yeah, he's he's this. He I like. I don't think I ever really picked up on how lean and lanky he was when he was playing singles. You know, he he was. Uh, he was a singles player, gotten got up to around number fifty in the world. I can't remember exactly how high he got. He's won a couple tournaments as a singles player, and it, it seems like he's aged fifteen years. Like he's just he's a little gray. He kind of like he just he just seems like he's transitioned into another part of his life. He's he's middle aged Rajiv Ram now, um, and uh, but yeah, like a real double star uh winning winning the mixed and with a chance to to win uh the uh, men's doubles and he's he's done both of those things before so he's really he's really making a career of it and he's got that that sampras like serve and yeah some really nice net play as well 
And uh, yeah, it's been nice to just have something like a, something else to watch. I, we've talked before how it just feels like I don't have the energy to dedicate myself to doubles. But at the end of the slam, it's a good way to kind of, you know, hang on for dear life, basically. Right. When there's less matches on, the doubles suddenly are thrown into focus. So I watched them play. Um, I watched him play with Krejcikova in the mixed doubles finals last night. Mm-hmm. They beat uh, Samantha Sosa and what's that, Matt Matt Ebden quite easily. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't very competitive. I think the first set was six one, um, and a little tighter in the second set. But yeah, they they controlled the match pretty solidly. Samantha Stosa is definitely winding up her career up you would think although yeah. she's still a she's still a good doubles player she got to the second round this year in um singles she actually did win a round in singles this year yeah she did um but yeah it's obviously there's always a glut of aussie players in the in the doubles and in the singles but you know obviously at their home tournament they get all the wild cards and stuff so you often see some older Aussie has beens in not as so as a has been, but mm. Matt Ebden is is a bit in the doubles. <laughs> yeah, and they've also like made it easier to win a mixed doubles, and like because it used to be a draw of one hundred and twenty eight, just like the singles in doubles. Right. But now it's sixty four, and for the doubles, for the mixed doubles, it's only thirty two. Plus, it's like the advantage. The no advantage um, scoring uh, system, right? Scoring yeah. system, yeah. And the third set is a match tiebreak. Yep. So you can be quite lucky and go through, um, get a good run, and then all of a sudden you're in the final of a Grand Slam. Yeah. Which you know, to me, is just like it kind of dilutes the importance of doubles, which used to be you know a, a discipline highly regarded in, in its own right you know yeah wimbledon keeps the uh the five set play right they've held on yeah they do for the men yeah the five yeah. sets for the men yeah i hope i hope they maintain that i think that's yeah it's nice to give doubles its spotlight i i'm a real um strong opponent of uh the no ad scoring i don't mind the third set match tiebreak for non-slams I do think that's that's a that's a good legitimate way to shorten matches, you know, in smaller tournaments. But um, but at the Slam, it feels like it should be allowed to have breathing room. Like, what's the rush? I, I especially with that smaller draw, you know, yeah. thirty-two people. It it makes me wonder how you qualify for mixed doubles. I guess you probably have to have a certain amount of rating uh, cachet. To, to get in I don't know if there's there are qualifying tournaments for mixed I mean are mixed doubles played in other events anywhere no so, not really yeah. it used to be the Hopman Cup I'm not sure it's more of a like kind of an exhibition kind of thing isn't it but yeah. in the Grand Slams it's been a thing for a long time and they use to work out the seedings they use the players doubles ranking but there's a lot of wild cards and I think there's a lot more room for discretion in the mixed doubles yeah it's a shame I, I really like mixed it'd be nice to see see more of the different types of tennis i do i you know i had friends in australia who went with me 
to the to the open a couple years ago and you know everybody has a great time when they go for the first time but one of them came away uh, my friend melissa was just like super into the doubles i was like why isn't there more interest in this you know it's like more interaction there's more like it's a little bit like crazier you know there's more more crazy shit happens in doubles because you get all this intense these you know reaction volleying and the angles can be really wild and you know there's a lot more variety overall i think there's a lot to like doubles it's the fast-paced version of tennis doubles (laughs) with quick reaction volleys and angles oh my god did you see that angle what about the angle they got that shot doubles what about those smashes? How do they keep returning those smashes? You have two players at the back defending, getting the smashes back. Wow, another another defensive lob. Well, what will happen this time? Doubles. Doubles. It's what you watch <laughs> when there's no singles to watch. <laughs> Doubles. It's what you watch when there's no singles to watch. <laughs>